Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. My name is George. I'm one of the pastors here at the Mount. We're going to be looking at a passage. This is our second, of course, it's the first week, first Sunday in January, in 2024, but it's actually the second of our sermons in our first five series. And today we are going to be looking at prayer. Um, it's not really a how-to, more of a why and what. Uh, But let me read the passage, and we'll pray, and we'll get right into the passage. So, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will you pray with me? Father, would you take this parable and give us a deeper longing to know you? Give us a deeper trust that you know our needs, you know our hearts, that you are able to keep us despite everything that this world seems to be doing. God, would you give us hope through Jesus, the only Savior. May we trust you more. May we as a church love you together more. God be glorified um, in this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. So you might be, I don't know if you are, but you might be a, a new believer or a young believer, and if, if, if you were to ask me what is the first thing that I would have you do, I would say it would be get into good Christian community. Get into a church where you're going to see worked out, fleshed out, proper worship, the Bible read and explained. And, and more pertinent for what we're doing here today is prayer. A new believer, a young believer, you probably have a lot of questions like, how do I pray? It's not common in our world, our culture, to, to rely on prayer. And so you might be saying, how do I do it? And, and by that, you might mean two different things. You might mean 
tips and tricks. You might mean, you know, give me a set prayer. You might need to know, how do I keep from falling asleep when my college dorm group prays late at night and they go on for an hour? I've never done that before. You might think of things like the Lord's Prayer or a model for prayer like Acts. Daily, daily patterns, is there a best time for prayer? And all of that's great for application, and there's the proper sermon for that. We're not going to touch on that today. We're now dealing with tips and tricks, and that's just not going to be our focus. Um, on the how do I pray, we also might think of an approach or a mindset, sort of the reason behind or the manner we're going to approach prayer. We might think, James, don't go to prayer doubting or you can't expect anything to come of it. We're going to deal with that a little bit, this approach or mindset for prayer. Besides for how do I pray, you might be thinking, what should I pray? The content of my prayers. And so you might ask yourself, is it appropriate for me to be praying that my team wins? Is it appropriate um, to pray for my own future, or should I only pray for other people? Is it appropriate to pray that I do well on a test or that I go through this medical test well? Are prayers at mealtime really all that important or helpful, or is it just a show? Should I pray for illness, for missionaries, for boldness? All these things are the what of prayer. And then, of course, moving from how to what, we can then think of the why should I pray as we dig deeper. If God is all-knowing, if he's omniscient, why tell him anything? Why talk to him? He knows my heart, my mind, my future. Is it really necessary? If God is sovereign, why ask him for anything? He's able to make it come to be. He's able to do it. He knows more what I need than I do. Does it do anything? Or is it just a comfort for myself? Or maybe the ultimate, I don't hear God. Is something wrong with me? Why won't he talk to me? Or maybe you're, you've been following Christ for a while, and you have the same questions. Is there a practice or something that could help me know God's will for my life? Why or what should I pray for today? Why is this happening to me, God? And so that's where we're going to sit. Our focus today is going to be on the what's and the why's of prayer. So we're going to jump right into it. Um, the first point, of course, is love, the God worthy of our prayers. But in place of love, we might put power, mercy, faithfulness, compassion, glory, all these things wrapped up into one glorious vision of who God is. And so we're going to jump right in by reading the parable bit by bit. So it starts in verse 1. He says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so as we go through this, or as you're reading on your own, if you see a parable, you see Luke or Matthew or Mark or John say, this is what Jesus was talking about, it makes our job easy. We don't have to go so far. It also is a tool for helping us know if we've strayed away from the meaning of the, the, the parable. We can come up with all kinds of meanings for parables. We can allegorize them to the point that they don't resemble what the parable was in the first place. And Luke here sets it off for us, helping us to see that while there was a lot of different ways to read this parable, his point 
what Jesus was trying to say is that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. We can't get away from that center. Moving on to the next couple of verses, we start to see the characters um, in this parable. We see first a judge. It says, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, we can make all kinds of assumptions or try to read more into it, but we don't know very much. We know that there is a judge. We know that he doesn't give God honor. He doesn't give men honor. That's all we know. And so we don't want to read too much into it um, as we begin. Next, we see in verse 3, a widow. It says, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. We can talk about the litany of verses that tell us about God's care and concern for widows. We have in, in Psalm 68, 5, it says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Or in Isaiah 117, it reads, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Or more probably to the point for this passage, Exodus 22, 22 through 23 reads, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. We have Deuteronomy 14, 24, 26, all continuing to speak about God's special concern for widows. And so as this widow goes to the judge for justice, we're prepared to expect that this judge should be acting in a particular way. But the scripture says very clearly, hear what the unrighteous judge says. This widow is not going to get exactly what she's asking for in the way she's expecting. And so we're left with this conflict. It says, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, what a terrible reason to give justice, even if the verdict is correct. What a terrible, terrible statement. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. That, that word there, the beat me down, it, it's, it's one of those we, we fight to beat him down. It almost seems like he's going to get a black eye. The idea being like probably very similar to what we think when we talk about somebody giving us a black eye where we think of shame. Our reputation is going to be wounded. We're going to get a black eye for doing something. That's exactly what this judge is, is responding to. He has a good reputation. He's a shrewd guy. And this woman, if she keeps coming, it's eventually going to give him a bad name. So he's concerned for himself. He's not concerned for God. He's not concerned for the woman. He's concerned for himself. And that leads us right into the resolution. It says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So right off the bat, again, this doesn't teach us how to pray, but why to pray. We often want those hows, and many people look to this parable and say that we are supposed to see God as represented in this judge. And can I tell you how 
desperately wrong that is to take this judge and think that we need to approach God in that way. We don't have to browbeat God into submission to us. One, it won't work. But two, that's not what Jesus is asking his disciples. It's not what he's teaching. He's not saying, be like, recognize God is like this judge, so you have to behave in this way. Rather, the contrast is a how much more if an unjust judge who is doing it only for his own motives and his own benefit can give the right verdict, how much more is the God who is able and powerful and wonderful and compassionate, how much more is he going to do right by his children? So when Jesus says, hear the unrighteous, we're meant to hear that as, does that sound like God? If you, if, if, as you hear me tell this parable, is that what you think God is like? No, I mean, in the, in the judge, what we see is he doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect or show care for men. If we don't immediately see that we're talking the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, then we're sort of missing what this judge is like. This judge is a walking violation of what God intended his people to be like. And on the flip side of that, what he's really saying is, I am the kind of God who is love, who causes love between men. Another how we might get out of this parable, people try to make this parable about praying generally. And it's really not, and we're going to have to get into that, but we can comment, we, some of these common generalizations are that prayer should be repeated. We're going to be, God is going to give us what we want if we simply will pray repetitively. If we keep on praying the same thing, God will give us what we want. God is trying to use the repetition to test our sincerity. And what I want to tell you is that's not what this parable is about. This parable is not about repetition, but persistence. It's not about repeating the same prayer over and over trying to force God's hand. It's about continually trusting in the only one who can actually deliver. There's not a promise here that says if we keep on asking the same thing, that God will do something. It is about persistence. And so as we read biographies, if, you, if you've ever heard of George Mueller, he's known for praying, we can think, oh, God honored it because he just prayed so often, so repetitively for the same things. He talks about having a, a series of friends that he prayed for his entire ministry and never saw them come to faith. And right before his death, he finally does see that. And again, it's not because he repetitively did it day by day, but because he persisted in it day by day. This passage doesn't talk about it, but just to kind of throw it out there, because this is a common generalization as well as prayer is not about some incantation, some formula about saying the right words to twist God's arm. Biblical words and phrases don't mean God will suddenly give us what we want. And so we, we need to reiterate right from the beginning that we ought always to pray and not lose heart and realize that that's not about the same thing over and over again, but us persisting in trusting God enough to go to him, trusting him.
And so we pray to God because he is so much better than the judge in the story. He's powerful. Verse 7 says, And will not God give justice to his elect? There's no doubt on Jesus' part. Jesus' point is it is certain God will act. He's able to give his people justice. He's able to vindicate them. There's no weakness in him. There's no dependence on God. He is not waiting until there's some threshold of faith built up. He's not waxing and waning in power by number of followers. He's a solid refuge, and he's unchanging. There are some who want to put forward a theology that would suggest that God is growing with the rest of creation, that he's changing and becoming more loving. And Jesus says, no, he's always been able. He's unchanging. He knows exactly what we need, and we're the ones who need to learn to grow towards him. Certainty in the final result is what we have from Jesus, because God is able in and of himself, regardless of our failures and our lack of faith. That's the one we pray to. Moving on from there, he's merciful, he's compassionate, he's forgiving. Jesus is confident in God's compassionate response. He says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. He hears and he will respond. He cares. Jesus is working right out of God's self-declaration in Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The end of the parable ends with the Son of Man. When he comes, will there be faith? And we're meant to look through exactly the veil we did this morning as we read Hebrews 1. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so as Jesus speaks and says, I'm in a certain way, you see me and you recognize my love and my compassion, that's exactly who the Father is. The Father is also loving and compassionate. He's compassionate. He knows his own and will give them rest. Matthew 11 says that, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you feel the compassion of God? He's the gentle and lowly Savior we need. And that passage in Matthew overlaps perfectly here as we see both the authority of God and the loving kindness that offers us salvation. So when we read that Jesus is gentle and lowly, we find his heart of compassion that draws us to pray to the one who will show us mercy. That's who we are praying to. We talk about loving and pursuing. That's the kind of God we're praying to. He's defined as love in the Gospel of John. Not just love as an abstract principle, but love as a being who intimately knows love. 
We see through Scripture that we're given a picture of God where the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Father loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Son. There's this whirling, I don't even know the right word to use, but a loving unity that is part of God's very own nature. And so there won't be delay. He will He will speedily accomplish vindication for his people. God loves his own. And then to end this point, he's glorious, he's weighty, he's worthy of our worship. The judge was concerned for his reputation. If he didn't meet the needs of this persistent widow, he'd get a black eye, he'd be ashamed. He wasn't concerned about God's reputation, but God too is jealous of his glory. Only he has no need to be ashamed. In the final reckoning, all will see that God did perfectly, justly, and compassionately. Who else could we go to? We read again in John, you have the words of eternal life. He is going to be that one and only Savior. It says in Isaiah 43, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? This is the one we talk with, who we call upon, who we cry out to. And so that's our first why, our first reason to pray because of who we pray to. Point number two says, justice, the God who hears our prayers. Again, Jesus doesn't teach us necessarily how to pray, tricks and gimmicks here in this parable, but he does continue to teach us why to pray and what to pray. Jesus' final statement says that, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? A very pointed question. And so that answers our why pray. He hears the cries for justice and he will respond. We've established that in the first point. God will be faithful and he will be just. But there is another reason for us to persist in praying. And that is the hardness of a world in rebellion against God. And that is the context for this parable. It's not a parable about prayer just Pray like this. It is a parable that says the world is a certain way and therefore you must pray and you must keep at prayer. You will need it. So Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, um, starting in Luke 17, about verse 22, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom will come. He's been talking about the kingdom and so they try to push into when this kingdom will arrive. And Jesus says, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they'll say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. And so as Jesus is telling this parable, he sees that there will come a time when people will gather to themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. It's that idea of itching ears. They will get exactly the voices to speak that will tell them what they want to hear. They will find the Christ or the the Savior that they want rather than the Savior that actually came to save them. 
They'll reject his voice because they don't know it. But Jesus continues, he says, they were eating, as in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Life was just going about as usual for Noah. One generation to the next without end. And God says, no, there's a, there, there is coming an end. It won't go on forever like this. And then he continues, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So they were endeavoring to create a world that would suit them on their own terms, quite apart from what God was willing to do. And so Jesus in all of this, as he ends up and says, will the Son of Man find faith, is saying, pray. Because judgment is coming. The time is short and God will not long delay. And so what I want to tell you is don't let the world lull you into a false sense of security. God has made Jesus to be the only Savior. John 14 tells us that no one comes to the Father except through me. That's, what, that's Jesus' own sort of knowledge about himself. He is the Savior. But what we see in this parable is a split that they may not have been expecting, a split in salvation history. Instead of the Messiah coming to both save and to judge at one moment, all of a sudden we have Jesus, the Savior, coming to save, but the judgment pending for the future. And very clearly, Jesus knows who he is. He said, this Savior is going to be the judge. Our culture wants to picture Jesus as a good moral man, a good teacher, but certainly he would never judge. It's just beyond him. He's loving. Um, but despite the everybody-is-all-right mentality of our world, Jesus is coming as the judge. John 5 tells us that, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. John 5, 27 through 29 says, And the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And not just John. This is not like John is the only one who talks about it. Uh, Paul in, in Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus. There's more. There's Romans 2.16. You can read later 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 8. Or we can look at Revelation 19.11. The faithful and true, the word of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, arrayed for battle, arrayed to judge the rebellion against him. And so, again, pray because the world will be caught unaware. and We should not be. The world will be going about its business. We should be going about God's business. And that's why we pray. 
The world thinks it can save itself. It can make its own Christs. It can have its own form of righteousness, its own truth, and it'll be fine. It thinks it's all right on its own. It, it, it thinks humanity, we can rise above our worse nature, that we can overcome sin if we even admit sin. We can overcome sick and death on our own. Jesus says, pray because I'm coming and you want to be ready. You want to be prepared. Apart from the call to Christ, we are no better off than the world. We stand just as much sinners condemned. But for those of us who have come to Christ, we've been made righteous. There is no threat of this kind. And so we pray knowing that God is the one who can deliver. As one of Christ's people, God will do justly by the Son and will save us. We can rest assured. And so we, we dig in deeper to the what to pray. And the first thing, if, if this morning you're not a believer, is save me. That's the what to pray. Save me. Uh, there was a song by a band probably back in the 90s, All-Star United. You probably don't know them if you do. Great, wonderful. They have this line that always catches my attention that says to cry out to Jesus with a capital help. Makes no sense, but that is exactly the idea, to cry out to Jesus knowing he is the one who will help, who will rescue. He's the only one who can. What to pray continuing, for God to conform us to the image of Christ. Not to just make us happy and well-adjusted and getting everything that we want, but that we would look like Christ. Second Peter tells us to confirm our election. And this is something we can be praying about, that God would make it clear that we are one of his people, that we can have confidence and hope and peace and rest because we know we are one of God's people. Or like Jesus in the garden, we can pray for God's will to be done, even if it brings us pain and suffering or even death. We should pray to flee temptation, not to get caught up in the world system. We can pray to endure slander, misunderstanding, mistreatment, betrayal, persecution. And so the challenge, are we prepared to pray? Not as entitled children because we're good enough, but as adopted sons and daughters of the king who are made righteous on account of his atoning death, resurrection, and ascension. Do we recognize our position and does that drive us to prayer? What to pray will be continued. Um, the early church was preaching and the Jewish leaders didn't like it. And so in Acts 4, we have the response after they've been beaten and sent away, told not to preach. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So, things to pray, what to pray. God, see their threats. 
We ask God, see, look, we know, you, we know you can see, but see, hear our cries. Show yourself faithful. Grant boldness to your servants to continue to speak your word. A regular part of our prayer should be that the word would go forward, that it would be boldly preached by pastors, that it would be shared in one-on-one settings in coffee houses and across dinner tables. Pray for the Spirit to move. Pray for the Spirit to receive glory, for God to work, and not just for us to have clever tools and clever plans in order to share the gospel. Pray for unity of a people who will proclaim the excellencies of Christ before a rebellious and sin-deluded world. They don't understand. They need us to share, and they need us to be praying that God would work. Point number three says that his faith, the God who awaits our prayer. And what I want to do is return to the final verse of the passage. It says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus looks at it and says, I know who mine are, and I will respond to their prayers, but it's going to be hard. So when he says, will he find faith, the answer should absolutely be for us, yes, because he knows his people, and he can hold them. He can keep them safe. When the elect cry out to him in prayer, he knows them. And so the answer is yes, but it will be hard. But before we kind of dig into this hardness, I want to focus first on just who the elect are. And and for that, we need to look forward. So we looked in point number two, we looked backwards to the context of the parable. In this one, we're going to really look forward. Following this parable is another parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You may be familiar with it, but the idea being a Pharisee is praying in the temple and is basically saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm so awesome and I'm so wonderful and I do all the things I'm supposed to. And there's a tax collector, despised, who's beating on his chest going, God, forgive me. I'm nothing. And what connects these two parables is the idea of righteousness, of justice. God will be right. He will be righteous. And when we start talking then about who the elect are, we see in this parable the answer. Those who are righteous are those who God has made righteous. It is the humble in spirit. It is those who are broken and know their sin. They know their need for God. They know their need to be saved in the first place. And to those kind of people, God will be faithful. But again, that doesn't mean it will be easy. And so we're going to end up the sermon really focusing on a particular kind of prayer that lends itself to realizing that judgment is coming, realizing that God is going to judge the world and that God is glorious, and that is lamentation. Just to kind of set the stage, um, Psalm 13 is a very quick psalm. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You can hear the widow praying, 
Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So we will lament with the widow. We will, we will lament with those who are denied real justice. We do have the sense that as a, as a Christian people, that we should be always happy and overjoyed and we can be really put to task because we don't feel that always. Sometimes we feel the hurt of the world. Sometimes it registers very deeply. We lose a loved one. We don't get that promotion. Life isn't seeming to work out the way that we intended it to or we thought it should. Our attempts to bless others are spit back in our face with betrayal and slander and gossip. Lament. That's what it's meant to be there for, is to say, God, I see this world and it is broken, but I trust you. I don't just despair. I don't just revel or or wallow in the hurt, but I turn to you and let you be my answer. So we lament. We lament for hurting pastors. There are pastors in many churches struggling, and we pray for them. We, We offer up just a, a cry that God would help them as they preach the word faithfully. We have to pray for members who are hurt by sin in the church. It happens. People are hurt within the church, and we need to pray for them. We offer prayers of lament knowing that we're a broken people, and we ask God to act. We pray for churches that have lost their first love just as well as churches that hardly seem to be churches. They've left the Savior altogether. We lament as we watch a world, friends and neighbors and loved ones reject him, reject the word of life even. And, and we have to remember then that to lament is not to lose heart, rather it is to entrust real pain and distress to the God who's faithful. And so, again, the call is to persist in prayer as you ought, and don't lose heart. We pray, we pray, we pray worshiping God, we pray asking Him for things, we pray confessing our sin, but we need to be ready to pray, this world is broken, God, but I trust you. We pray because Christ is coming, we pray because He's not yet here. We pray in the middle, and so since we're living in this already, not yet kingdom of God, our prayers have to be persistent. We pray because we're called to pray, we're commanded to pray, and we pray because we know the one who hears our praise and his heart for those who do cry to him. We pray because the inspired author passes to us, Luke says, we ought to pray always and not lose heart. Such prayer is the mark of our faithfulness. It's a confirmation of our election, an element of our participation in and belonging to the body of Christ. And such prayer is a goad to further faithfulness, to patience and comfort and joy. As God's people, it's only natural for us to cry out for deliverance, for his mercy, for vindication, for help. And so 
today, this week, look at your prayer life. Does it show that you're one who is seeking Christ's glory first? Does it show that you're trusting in Him alone? Or does it point back and say, I'm really interested in my own affairs? We cry out as individuals. We cry out for one another. We cry out as the assembled people of God. God's knowledge is no barrier to our prayers. God's sovereignty is no barrier to our prayers. We've been invited to pray and we should take advantage of it. Whether we're expressing joy, whether we're expressing despair or thanks or pain or wonder. And so will you join me in prayer this year? Let's pray. Father, as we read this parable and we see the certainty of Jesus that you will respond, that you will deliver, that you will vindicate your people, God, we ask that you would help us to trust you. God, we see a broken world. We see so many things that we're powerless to stop. We're powerless to change, but you are not powerless. You see and you will act, and we know that, and so we trust you today. God, we ask you to move in ways we could never expect. We ask you to send your spirit in Clemson, in Central, in Anderson. God, we pray that you would pour yourself out, that people would be saved that they would have lives changed, that they would come to you, that they would be encouraged and challenged in the body of Christ. Father, we pray that in all this you are glorified. God, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.